Pink, The Humble Monster. Chicken salad. Man, this, man, this man eat more chicken than anybody, boy. Yeah, lay up the goddamn chicken, though, man. What? Yeah, that chicken they poison Bill Gates poison chicken. Poison ass chicken. Man, they want, if they want to get rid of black population, all, all they got to do is poison the chicken. That's all they've been doing, shit. Excuse me. <laughs> At the end of the day, they're like, they're like, let's put in their chicken. Put in the grits, put in the chicken, put in the collard greens. <laughs> What's the weather out there now today? It's nice, it's like 67, 70 degrees. Oh, it's chilly, man. Yeah. It's chilly super. weather. Are you ready to get into it? Yeah. All right. So, let me go ahead and do the intro right quick. For my guy, please walk up. Super Bowl champion, three-time Pro Bowler defensive lineman, and podcast host, my guy, Michael Bennett. What's going on, my guy? Man, just chilling, man, trying not to get the coronavirus. It's everywhere, but everything else good. You weren't far enough. <laughs> you, but you know what's you so crazy, though? <laughs> you know what's so crazy, though, is like, it's one of those things, too, like with, with the coronavirus and stuff. Even though it's a virus and it has all these different things, it's like one of those things that make people like realize, like trying to balance out what's like essential in your life, like what's the most important things in your life. And it's crazy sometimes you can't really focus on things like that into something like into God or whatever. You I believe in God, and you might have a whole bunch of podcast listeners that don't believe into God, so I won't get into um, all those politics or whatever. But right, right, right. right. It, but it's one of those things where like you feel like God puts you in a situation where it's like you got to face like all these different issues, and it's. It gets annoying though, cause it's just like, dang, like I've been trying to run away from this shit for like two years. Now I gotta, now I gotta head head on. I have nothing but time now. Like that dude said on that on that uh, what's the name? I got time today. That's yeah, I I, no, I ain't got time, but today I got time for sure. I mean, if this pandemic ain't showed you that money and cars don't mean shit, I don't know. I don't know what won't show you. Know, I don't know what else can happen that they won't show you that. You know what I'm saying? Or that will show you that, like material shit, don't mean nothing right now, for real. You know, it, and it's so crazy though because it's like we living in a, such a materialistic world, like right. I mean, like even in the Bible or whatever, whatever biblical thing that people listen to, like it doesn't say that it doesn't say that money is wrong, but it says like the lo- the the love of money is the issue. And I think we've come into a society where people just love it so much, they love the material that it almost becomes like such a nuisance in their life. Like, I mean, it's okay. It's great to have nice things, but nice things shouldn't be our ultimate goal in life. Like nice things shouldn't be like the trump card for every moral decision that we make. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But you um, you grew up in Louisiana mm-hmm. first? Yeah, in Texas? Yeah, I've been, I spent like a, I spent, Louisiana is kind of like where my family is from, like, like since like, 1700 so it's like that's where we from so it's like that's where we they dropped off on a slave ship and that's where they've been at for the whole period of time in this small town for long you can go to the graves and it's crazy when you look at a grave and that shit say 1794 or some shit that shit just blows <laughs> and like but that's how long they've been there for so 
but then I went and moved to Louisiana and Louisiana was like, I mean, moved to uh, California and that was like a whole nother, like a whole nother vibe. Like living in San Diego back in the nineties where gangs were like crazy. Like, I mean, the first time I seen a dead body, I was like nine or 10 years old. Just, just in a park somewhere in the field? It was an apartment because like in where I grew up in California in San Diego, um, like they had like all these little stone things for drive-bys you get in because it was a drive-by. They like drive. That was back when I mean gang violence is big now, but I remember back in the '90s it was felt like it was even crazier. You know what I'm saying? I seen a dead body just in the apartment complex, just laying in the ground. Like somebody just killed him. Like boom, just laying right there. People just walking by. Like that was my first time seeing a dead body. It was kind of kind of blew my mind. So when you saw boys in the hood and everybody want to see a dead body, you were like that was that was that was minutes. real. Was that Minnesota like Boys that, in the Hood? <laughs> I feel like that was like your Boys in the Hood. That was like kind of like what, like literally to me, like being in California in the nineties. I feel like that was kind of like really like what it was. That's so. What, what would you say you you got most of your game from from all those three places? I say Louisiana because Louisiana, like Louisiana, was like like I feel like California was like like a hard place, but like. Like, it was like violence hard, but it wasn't like working hard. Like like in Louisiana, people work hard. Like they they go and they farm, they move, they like really do. They do work with their hands. You know what I'm saying? They do right. work that's like honest living, and that's kind of how I built up my strength there. Because I spent most of my summers and most of most of my time in Louisiana, and like, and so that's where I really learned how to play football. Honestly, like playing there because my we got a lot of land out there. And so we used to play football in, in the front yard against other people's families. And, like, it was just, like, a hardcore, like, hard tackling. Like, so it was, it was right. a different type of vibe. So you you six what? Six four. So how tall were you at 10? I don't know. I had to be, like, at least 5'10", probably. That ain't even right. Yeah. But, I was, but from, like, 8 to 9, I was in the hospital for, like, a year. So I spent, like, a year, my almost a year and a half in the hospital. Oh, wow. I had a ruptured appendix in it, and it it, it went uh, septic, like it was all in my whole stomach. So they had to clean up my whole intestines and all that kind of stuff. So I was in the hospital, like, and and that, and to be honest, that was kind of one of the things that kind of like really like to this day, like, like that's probably why I don't see a lot of boundaries or whatever because I've seen so much at like a young age. Like I've seen like kids like with like crazy burn degree, like burns and like stuff that they can never get past, like gunshot wounds and shit, stuff like that, and like. And it's like one of those things where I just seen so much and it kind of like just kind of built my character up to be like, man, there's no limits to you to uh, to recovering or there's no limits to your human self. Like I seen kids recover from some crazy stuff at a young age. And like being in the hospital, man, I remember telling my parents, you know, black parents are like, you going to school, you going to school, I don't care what you say, you going to school today. And I was like, mom, my stomach hurt. Like, I don't know, it don't feel right. I don't like, you know, like, and, you know, as a parent, like, I feel like in the in the black community, a lot of times, the African-American community, we kind of like, hospitals, like, we don't really do hospitals. Like, at the Tuskegee Airmen, all that kind of stuff. Like, it's got to, you got to, we got to see you physically dying, physically choking. Like, we can't really, it's, it's, when you get to the hospital, it's almost too late sometimes. Like, sir, if you'd have came here two months ago, we could have saved your life, you know what I mean? But, yeah, here, go but, Mama going to put some Vaseline and Tussin on them. Yeah, drink some salt water. You can goggle it and go all this salt. Spit it out and you should be good now. So, but yeah, I told my mom and she was like, nah, then I went to school, I started throwing up this yellow stuff. But I was like, I don't know, I ain't eating nothing yellow, but it was like, it was like acid and, and poison and all the stuff because your appendix like holds all that, the nasty stuff. And so it was coming out, coming out of my mouth or whatever. And I was throwing it up and stuff. And, 
And then finally, I went to a doctor like later that day. I had to have emergency surgery like that day. They said, if you didn't come, you probably would have died. That's crazy. So how many years you and your brother apart? We're just one year apart. So that, so was that still a big brother role or was that, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, still a big brother. I think it's one of those things, too. Me and my brother are so close. And I think it's the reason we're so close, too, is like, it's not very often, like, I feel like in life, like, like brothers and sisters, they grow up and then, like, and you get to a certain age, you're 18, and you kind of, and everybody starts to go their own way, like, kind of, in the 20s and 30s, everybody, like, somebody live in Virginia, everybody live in the different areas, and right. everybody kind of, like, do certain, they did a certain amount of stuff they experienced with their family for a long period of time, but as you get older, you start experiencing the world and meeting new people, and, and, and they kind of shape your, your future a little bit, right, and, but for me and my brother, we didn't have that, we just kind of went, we always did everything together, all the way to college, all the way to the NFL, so it's like, our relationship was symbiotic because it was very similar in, in growth and it's very similar in experiences. So it was always like really close. So we always kept that big brother role. And I think even to this day, like we still bounce ideas off each other. Like that's the first person I kind of run to when I have an idea and we kind of talk it out and we kind of go from there. How tall is your brother? Six, eight. <laughs> Why the baby always be bigger, right? That's just be crazy. <laughs> mama, mama did, he, I, you know, the first baby, my mama was like 16 when she had me, so she probably was giving me infamil and shit. Probably gave him breast milk. Man, my um, my grandma had all five of her kids before she was 19. That's crazy. That's how my mom was, too. She was like 20. Before she was, your grandma was 19. My mom was 21. Knocked it out right quick. Yeah, I couldn't imagine. Though. I, sometimes I'd like, you know, like, like in my book, like I was telling talking about it in the book, like like you know, sometimes like with, with parenting, like you don't realize how hard parenting is, right? You don't realize like the amount of like when you become a parent, you just have to give so much. You have to take away from yourself. Like it's a really hard thing to do. But it's like you got these goals and you have to balance those goals in between raising kids and sacrificing some stuff that you want. Like, like, you know, there's sometimes you just want to just do what you need to do for three months. Like, nigga, if I was cooking for three months, like, nigga, it would be, uh, but it's like, you can't do that because you got to be there for your kids. And I look, because a lot, because my mom, like, my mom and my dad, they got divorced. It was high school sweethearts. They had five kids early. And so, like, I lived apart from my mom for a long period of time. And and when you're a kid, you kind of don't understand that kind of stuff and you can't comprehend it. But then when you get become an adult and you, you start to build up all this hate for somebody and your people, you start build up this not understanding, like, well, why, why? Then you get older. Then you understand, you're like, damn, this shit is kind of hard. Like, and then you kind of keep going to forgiving mode. Like, you know what, mom? Like, you know, you might have did something wrong, but there's some places I could have did better too. You know, I think that takes a lot of effort. That part. To yeah. Yeah, hindsight is 2020, man. Cause you know, my parents split up when I was in the fourth, fourth, fifth grade. You know what I'm saying? So you're trying to figure out, you, you tend to blame yourself for some reason. Yeah. I know I did. You know what I'm saying? You like, maybe it's my fault they broke up or whatever, or they ain't together. So, to this day, that's why I got a tattoo of my mom and pops on my arm. That was the only way they were going to get back together. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> that was the only way. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Was to put them on my arm. But, uh, yeah, it was like, it's definitely, uh, it's, it's crazy to, to lose your parents. Because that's, you know what I'm saying? Like, it don't make sense to you at all. It don't make no sense to you. It don't make no sense. It is a void, right? And then, even in the sports world, a lot of times, like, you know, a lot of the white coaches, not to bring race into this, but race is a part of everything you do in this world. And it's like, when you look at a lot of white coaches, they kind of like, they so used to seeing people without parents or seeing people without dads that they try to be in those places. But 
they they be like, oh, I'm like, like, I don't need a dad. You know what I'm saying? Like, just coach me. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, you know, homie and a coach. Yeah, like, like it's like when you, whenever you have a dad and you, he stays around, that kind of means a lot. It's almost like it's like a trophy in, in, in the black community, kind of sometimes because sometimes it's like, and sometimes it be the, sometimes it don't be, sometimes it don't be the father choice. Sometimes people could be so scorned because of what the other person did to them, and they feel like the kid is the only way to really take really to get back at them. That's the thing that they really care about. Whether That's it's the last piece of the no. puzzle. That's the last yeah. piece of the puzzle as a kid. Yeah, it's like I'm holding on to this a little bit. It could be the man or the woman who does it. And it's just like people can be very vindictive sometimes. And I think is and into like we realize that like when we when we take away the kids, we really take away from we take away the kid, we think we're hurting them, but we're really hurting the kids. You know what I'm saying? And it's really hard for parents to, and it's really hard for parents to be like to stay friends, like when it, whenever like, especially when adultery is a part of the, the relationship breakup. And that's usually what really happens. You know, people don't really come to each other like, you know, I haven't been in love with you for a while. And I think sometimes with love, too, like, it's one of those things where, like, we don't nurture love enough for it to continue to grow. I mean, you know, certain generations, they get mad. It's like, you know, forget you. Forget you. All right, done. I'm done. All right, cool. Wow. Like, no work. Really, you <laughs> no. know what I'm saying? No really work, real work put into anything you know what i'm saying it's like once my pitch you out like i'm out you out you know what i'm saying <laughs> and then like you know like it's sometimes it's like you could be physically there but be mentally gone you know what i'm saying and like and that's really the hardest one though because it's like i'm here but nigga i'm mentally nigga, i'm somewhere else like like and that, and i think that happens in a lot of a lot of people especially when people have kids at a young age i think kids too like when you're young i was thinking like my mom was 16 i'm like damn that's crazy Pregnant, she had two kids at 17. Like, that's you know know how stupid I was at 16. Exactly, and that's why I I kind of build up the sense of empathy for it. You know, like, you can't really really love the world or do stuff for the world if you ain't really kind of mended your own spiritual wounds and stuff like that. You know, so it's like a lot of that happening for people. That part, And, and it's not until you get older that you really understand what areas that affected you in mm. you know what that i'm saying part real. that part like of real. real shit like i didn't even really understand the trauma yeah. that i was dealing with until later because you end up dealing with somebody bringing all that baggage to them and that's crazy too because it's so hard like every when you look at it's like when we look at somebody like <laughs> when people look at people for relationships they always look at it as like the outer like like oh this you got a big ass or it's like the, they got missed like but then on the inside who knows what the type of person what kind of trauma they dealt with on the inside what is going like on you said, like, and, and then you bring it in and both people two people with trauma trying to manage that adding kids to it that's that's a lot you know people don't talk about that enough like I mean, Fab said it on my record, a hurt woman and a damaged dude. That's, Nobody that's, win when the family feuds, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's a hell of a line, you know what I'm saying? Bro, that, that line right there, bro, that line resonates with the world, too, because it's like so many people are really damaged, damaged goods. And like, and when you hurt and damaged, and, and when you mix those two together, they like oil and water. They do not mix. At all. Explosion. <laughs> what, what, um... When did you know that you like you actually love football? Like when when you knew that was gonna be your path? Like, was that early? You know what? Like I never really knew. Like like I like I like I like football, and kind of was kind of one of those things too. Being in Texas, like football is such a big part of everybody's life. And I actually thought I was gonna be like a chef or something. I don't know. I was like a movie director. Like those kind of big things. That I, 
<laughs> That's what I think I wanted to be. And I've always loved music. Like, I grew up, like, in Texas, like, music. So, I was like, I don't know. I, I feel like football kind of really came to in high school. And I was like, you know, like, this, I mean, I mean, it can be bad. Like, you can make a lot of money doing it. It would be good. It's a lot. But I think it was in high school when I really, really fell in love with the first time I really felt like a real injury. I feel like in middle school and elementary, you don't really get injured like that. And I remember in ninth grade, I broke my ankle. And all I could think about was, like, getting back on the field. And I was like, dang, if you break your ankle and you – and you feel a certain amount of pain for something, you feel a certain amount of pain through something, and you can go back to it. It's like what they say, like, you can't, you you can't, without sacrifice, there's no righteousness, right? And it isn't until you had that one moment of that sacrificial part of your life, and then you realize that, dang, I really love this, and, and that's when your eyes start to open up. And I think when I got injured, they opened up for me. So, <clears throat> I'm thinking the coaches probably figured it out before you did. Yeah, I mean, I played I played offense for a long time. I was running back for until like eleventh grade. What? Yeah, I didn't play defense until like tenth or eleventh grade almost. So, how tall were you when you graduated? I was six four to two forty. A six four. That was some Ari Dickinson shit. Yeah, to this one guy who was better than me, he came out there doing that Courtney match, man. He was so good. I was good, but then he, I was like kickoff returns and doing all this stuff, running kickoff returns back. And, and jet sweeps and stuff, but this dude, he was like five, and I was like six one, six two at that time. I'm maybe six one, but he was like six foot, like two forty five, running back, running like four four. Nobody could tackle him. He was he was fast. Like he, did, if he, did, he didn't have the grades, man. If he had the grades, he couldn't get like Nebraska on him, like all kinds of stuff. But he could never pass his test, so he never really got. He went to TSU, and like you know, sometimes you go to TSU, it's like a lot. It's a lot different in football experience than like going to Texas A&M. Like, I went to A&M, and it was a whole different experience as far as, like, college football. I mean, that's a hell of a football program anyway. Like, just the history on Texas A&M is, like, insane. Yeah, it's, it's crazy insane, right? Because it's, like, one of those things where we have, like, such a tradition. It's, like, a tradition. like, And it's something about having traditions in, in, in anything. And having traditions make it more culturally – like you just get so attached to like the players who came before you and they become like part of your life too. So um who was your favorite team like in high school? Like my favorite team growing up was the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Why? I love Warren Sapp. I love, <laughs> I love Warren, Warren, I had to be somebody, I had to be the player. Shelton Quarles, I love I love Derek Brooks. I love everybody on the defense. Like it was just just the Booger McFarlane. They did have just, a – there was a hell of a team on the game, too, that year, too, though. On the, on the, I, was, um, I was lucky, too. Uh, on game day, 99? Yeah. Yeah, that was my favorite game, too, with Terrell with Tur- Davis, too. You could do the little jump step. But it's crazy, though, because I literally end up getting coached by the coach that coached them. And so it was like – it was like just one of those things where, you know, you look up to those people. I like – I love defense. Rondé Barber, like, they just had, like, a step defense and, like, it come in one after another, one after another. Greg Spires, this crazy amount of players on that defense. And I used to watch them. I used to love defense. So. Which is pretty much what Legion of Boom was at the end of the day, like just a squad full of talented people on one, you know what I'm saying, like one roster. You yeah, know what I mean? The crazy thing about them, though, is like literally, honestly, there's never been a more famous team in the NFL than that team that I was on. When you talk about culturally, like you talk about people, when I look at the – when you think about like people who – like you can turn a TV on lot seeing somebody from my team on a commercial. Like we have, we're stacked with superstars on every single level. Which we, and we didn't come into the league as superstars. We made ourselves superstars, right? 
So we had like a stack defense for real, for real. So did you did your brother make you better, or did you make your or did you make your brother better? What do you think? I think it's even. I think we make each other better in a lot of a lot of ways. Like I think there's not a lot of times you could be honest with somebody and. I think sometimes you, we make each other better because we're honest with each other and we give each other honest assessments of what's really happening and how it affects us personally and how it affects our whole spectrum of life and our, and our little ecosystems that we have. And I think we both make each other better when it comes to that in that point of view. But you you dimmer than dab in track and field too, though. I'm trying to figure out who you throwing the, uh, the javelin. Who was you, who was you doing in track and field? Shot put. That, what was that, the ball joint? Yeah, yeah, shot put in discus. I was good. So what was, what was your longest, your longest throw? You remember? I can't even remember. It was like it was over one sixty something at the discus. Man, child, I was five, five four in high school, bro. Dang. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you know though. <laughs> I'm five I ten. You know. I'm five ten now. I graduated five seven. Hey, it's crazy though, cause I feel like all the people in the music industry are a little like I. From the first time I saw Kendrick Lamar, I was like, "Wait, this this the nigga? This nigga they talking about good kid, Mad City? Like it's like crazy, like it's crazy, like all the rappers like really little, like little baby, like little 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 tiny people, like it's just, they just tiny." That's how I felt when I met Mob Deep. I was like, "No way!" <laughs> like Mob Deep, like this one of the most violent records I got in my stash. These dudes like five six. Just crazy. Like literally, like still love their music to this day though. Oh, they they production is crazy too. <clears throat> You'll have I mean, I gotta, was you a mob D fan? You was a mob D fan though back then? Yeah. I mean I especially when like when when the, um the, that one album that they, he produced for the game, because I used to like the game a lot too. And, and, Last night I was a nigga to shop your projects. Pretty get to some like, like you know, like the game used to be good, but he kind of he got got kind of corny a little bit. I will I wasn't really there, but did did you know <laughs> or did you have an idea that you weren't gonna get drafted? No, I didn't have no idea. I didn't know. I mean, I thought I was gonna get drafted. You know, everybody think they're gonna get drafted. Anytime you do something, you think that something great gonna come out of it. Very rarely that you do something and be like, man, uh, I'm gonna be shitty. Like your shit gonna suck. But it is, but you know, but I actually think, I just think being undrafted was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. It made me be it kind of put stuff into perspective. Like I said, it put it put me back into my survival mode. And I think I'm in my best in my survival mode. Like this, the mode of like, you know, like look, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, like, I gotta overcome. Like sometimes I feel like if you grew up with like a, and I think that's the hardest thing too. Like when you reach a certain amount of success, and now your kids don't have that same oomph about themselves, that same you know, that same uh, level of tenacity and that same level of that they should never, ever give up because they've been given so much. They don't know what it feels like to go in the refrigerator and don't have no food. And they don't know what this, like they live in a secluded world. And like, as soon as you say no, they cry. You're like, dang, I, my mama said no a hundred times before she said, yeah, you know what I'm saying? I say, yeah, a hundred times before I say no. And the one time I say no, you're mad. And, and, and dared you to cry. Yeah. So I feel like I was like being undrafted was kind of it put me in a position like to survive and not to not to take anything for granted. But um, shit, oh nine, rookie season, like, was you was you uh nervous or were you, were you built for? Or you was just ready 
ready to get to it? I think I was built for it. I mean, I grew up playing football. I never really feared anybody, honestly. I think I just went out there with the mindset of like, look, I got my baby girl, got my wife up here. Like, we not this, this, this what we doing? This what we doing? And I had to just put it on my shoulders and just be like, I'm gonna go out here and dominate during the preseason. And I did a great job of the preseason. I actually made the team, but then towards the end of the week, I mean, towards the third, fourth week, they was like, oh, we need to move one guy up because they told me at the beginning of the season they wasn't gonna play me. They were just, they were just gonna train me and get me ready for the next year. And uh, so I was looking forward to that and, and ended up going down to Tampa and, and, and they cut me like, and it was like, we're gonna bring you up the next week, next day, then Tampa claimed me. It was kind of a weird situation though, cause you don't really know the ends and nuances of football. I think like, I feel like high school football was so pure. Like it was so pure. Cause it was like, look, we're going against, we're going against that hood over there. They talking, they trying to get at our girls. They trying to do our, they trying to be us. There's like, it's a way different vibe. The NFL is just so many. So much, there's so much little small things that like, you don't even understand what it's like getting cut, like doing this, getting traded. It's just a lot of different moving parts. But I think in high school, it was just so pure and just like, just talent, like, you know, it wasn't no trainers, wasn't no nothing. We just went out there and just played great football. I remember we used to always eat Dairy Queen before the game. Like I would never eat Dairy Queen before. You know, Dairy Queen Sunday, like, like why we, man, why is stomach curtain the second grade? Like, uh, second. what you think? <laughs> I was getting that triple cheeseburger. I used to go to Dairy Queen out here, getting that triple cheeseburger out of there, man, and that uh, banana split. That was my thing. Man, what was that one that, that chocolate dip cone? We used to get that junk boy It'd be out there with third quarter, like oh my stomach hurt. Yes. But, nah. but you know what though? It was like it was just period. I think in high school it was just period football. College was was good, but it was you just. I think college you really start to see the business of it. Like you just see you get glimpses of it. Like they try to keep you in like the shell, but. Every every once in a while, you you'll take a glimpse and look out and be like, "Oh, this ain't real." Like, you know what I'm saying? But then when you get to NFL, you really, really, really see the business and like seeing stuff like when people injured and like they want to, they want them to come back, but then they want to cut them, so they'll have them come out there and and oh, you look good, you look so good, go out there and practice. Then you practice, you get done practicing, your ass getting cut. But it's like pros, like like just learning the plays alone is like. A challenge, you know what I'm saying? Just learning that playbook and just, you know actually, what I mean? Play, like, actually, I feel like you kind of got to be kind of slow not to know the playbook on defense. Like, defense is, like, I feel like defense is, there's, it's really about concepts. I think everything is really about concepts. Like, when you start to grasp the concepts of it, something, like, you can, it could be interchangeable. Like, you were saying about when you were talking about, like, making beats and you were talking about, like, when you get the concept of doing the thing, like, you can, it, that's how it really is. Like, once you get the concept of how the defense is a play and they put you in another one, you can just, use your mind and be like, oh, this means this in this formation. Like, but people can't, a lot of people don't do that. I don't know why it's so easy at the end of the day. Like, I didn't play in every type of defense and really only took like two weeks to learn the playbook. It's always that one player that somebody got to come grab by a shoulder pad. But man, oh, he's supposed to be right here, bro. Like, <laughs> like what you doing? Like, bro. But I, could, I, I could imagine, I could imagine that in the music game too, where it's like, like, like you say, like, like you, you could be like, man, you're supposed to be right here and there. Like you, you, you missing it. Like you missing the wave. Like, what are you doing, bro? You, you, you a slot. You in the slot on this one. With like, bro, couple yeah. two. Like it's like just looking at like when you playing Madden, you see all these different. You know, what I'm saying dime, nickel, three. You know, what I'm saying three, four. Like it's like just knowing where you supposed to be. Like plus the offense will give you a different look that'll confuse you sometimes. So it's like. People screaming, so it's like just having all those elements playing. But that's what I was, like, 
But I was explaining that to somebody the other day when they were talking about uh, African American coaches, NFL not having enough African American coaches. And I was telling them, I was like, look, the the, the opportunities for African American coaches aren't really there, right? And it's not a lot of people getting those opportunities. But then, like, how many of us as African American kids wanted to be coaches? And and he was like, no, nah, no, nah, no, a lot. But I was like, think about it. But more people really want to be coaches than they really realize it. Because when they play in Madden, they're really coaching. They coaching the team. They're picking the scheme. They doing all these different things. They managing the team. They, they doing coaching, they don't even know that they love it. Like, but they only see the one part of it. It's like, I was telling them like, we need to start doing coaching camps. Like, why don't we do coaches camp and show kids what it is like to be a coach? Like if there's so much of kids that might be like five, three, that can't be in the NFL, but they love football. They love it, but they end up being a high school coach or this kind of coach because they don't know the journey of it. But a lot of the white players, they, uncle who's five, three is a coach. So they get put into the, you know, they get put into the, the line and to know how to coach it. But, I was like, there's an opportunity to start putting it into kids' mind. What do you think? You can't play? Like, wait, you could be a coach. You know, back in Seattle, I used to bring kids into the uh, program and, like, different kids from around the around the Seattle area and bring them to the facility and let them see how many different jobs was inside that building. And they just, it just blew their That's mind because cause they used to go to, like, different areas. It's like, oh, I could be in media. I was like, if you love media and you love football, you could be in the media part. You love equipment, you could be in equipment. You love the great. There's so many different jobs that a lot of people don't know about the NFL that if they love it, they don't have to be a player to be a part of it. You just gave some game right there. That's for sure. Did you um you feel like 2012 was your was your best year, Tampa? As far as no nah, nah, I feel like nah. I feel like it was it was my best early year, but over the years I feel like it's the stats just kept getting better and better. But I feel like uh 2012 was like just like I feel like it was just kind of like a preview of what I could really be. I think the 20 year before I was kind of like feeling feeling it out and kind of really started getting playing time in that year before, like towards the end of the season. And that year I got waived on playing time. I became a starter full time. And I just be um that's when I kind of started taking off. And then I went to Seattle and that was like a whole nother vibe. It was but I know I love Tampa though. Tampa was a good vibe, but I mean, me and Jerry McCoy, we had like a good young defensive line. I feel like if we just stayed together for like three or four or four more years, like we probably would have had one of the top defense lines in the NFL because we had Gerald, we had me, we had Adrian Claiborne. We had like enough role players to make like a real impact on the defense line. But were you mad when you left or you was it was happy you got up out of there? No, I was disappointed because it was one of those things where I talked to the GM, he was like, Oh, well, we're not we're not gonna franchise you, but we're gonna pay you just two million under the franchise. And I ended up taking less money to go to Seattle because I was just like and look, I didn't play through all these injuries and done all this stuff. And you mean you trying to hit me with the okie doke? Like, that's okay. <laughs> I, was, like, I went down to Miami and I visited Miami. I had like four visits. And then Pete Carroll and, and Dan Quinn, he was my coach. He had just, he he had left when I left. He had left the year before, the year after I left, he was a defensive line coach. And he had went to Florida University. And then when I came back for free agency, he had went back to Seattle and became a D coordinator. And then he was like, I need you back. Like, cause he just remembered him vibe so well. Like he was the one that showed me like, hey, you play right here, you play right here. It ain't about just being one position. It's about being able to be a weapon. And so that's what he kind of taught me. How was your um how was your greeting? How was your welcome to Seattle? Was it like, oh man, we needed you, bro? Or you yeah, have to go in there and you keep my rookie year though, like I always like cause my rookie year I was in Seattle. I actually loved Seattle the first time because it was like I used to live in Washington when I was a kid because my dad was in the military. I lived there for like two years or whatever. I remember like, you know, certain parts of it and the greenery and stuff. So I got back up and I was like, man, it's so green up here. I had, being in Texas was so flat. I haven't seen anything like that in a while. Cause keep in mind, we didn't try, we traveled, but we didn't travel the way that I travel now. And so when I got back to Seattle, I was like, I love it. So when the opportunity came to go back, I was like, man, I did love it up there. It was nice up there. So 
we we just jumped, we jumped in full arms. And then plus one of my closest friends was was still on the D line here. We went to college together, and his, him and his wife and all of us, we all went to college. And and so they, uh, he was still here. So I ended up uh, being living with him for a couple of weeks. Who you feel like put the hardest hit on you? The hardest hit of me? Walter on you. Jones. Walter, Walter Jones. Jones got you? The Walter Jones, those are practice too. Because he was he was already a Hall of Famer when I got there. He didn't really practice much or whatever. But I was a rookie, so I was going hard. Like, there was nobody stopping me. I used to – I go so hard. People would be like, man, this dude is just, like, going so hard at a ridiculous level. Like, like I was going so hard that I got a third-rounder cut. You know what I'm saying? Because I was just – I played him like that. Like, so it was like – it was like – and so Walter Jones grabbed me one. He's like, I told you, chill. And he got me the next time, threw me, threw my ass all across that field. Like, and like, so he was strong, man. How, how big is Walter Jones, man? Man, he, he could block the sun out, man. He a huge human. <laughs> what, he played nose tackle or something? No, he played offensive tackle. He was one of the best offensive tackles they ever played in the NFL. So taller than you then? He bigger than everything than me. His head, his head is so big right now. But his body, he got so skinny, but his head so big. I'm like, how you get so skinny, but your head so wide? The genetics. But I, did, I had a chance to me play with some of the greatest players in the NFL, like people that I dreamed about, like dreamed dreamed of wanting to be like as, as a kid. I had those opportunities to be be in the same locker room with them. And I was constantly learning. Like even every year I got, every year I was trying to learn more from different players and what they were doing. So yo. You getting your Super Bowl is like equivalent to me getting a Grammy. You know yeah, what I'm saying? It so it's like when you won the championship to go to the Super Bowl, how hype were you? How would you would you would you was you turned up? I was stupid turned up, but but you know what though? You can I mean I think it's a harder reference because I feel like with the NFL, like like you, you could kind of go and kind of make your own path. But I feel like with the record company, like you can't really, like it's it's dependent on other people's opinion of of your music. But I guess it would be equivalent when you think about actually holding something that you truly been working hard your whole life for in your certain genre of business, right? But I feel like at the when I won there, I feel like it was like two feelings. Like it was like a great feeling, but then there was also a sense of emptiness. Say it again. It was a sense of emptiness too. Like it was a great feeling, but it was also a sense of emptiness. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like one of those things where like, like when you work for something like, like, and you find out that it's not really, nothing really is just kind of like, like it doesn't change, it doesn't change your day. Like it doesn't, it doesn't hold this, like, it, I don't know, maybe because you put so much into wanting something so much and what it would feel like, what it, what the validation would feel like and what it would be like in your hand. And then you feel like and you grab it and you realize like, it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning. Like it's just a material thing. Like it's really not even the actual trophy. It's actually the journey to get the trophy that you are really cherishing. Like the people that you really made. Like you know, like you said, like in music, if you do a Grammy, it's like how many times did we do that take? Man, I added that extra sound, and that sound was the one that took the album over the top. But uh, it's just like that. So you, you probably more like me. You probably ain't really feel it until y'all start doing press that morning. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah. All the reporters in your face and asking you all these questions and you know everybody's like screaming and waiting out there early, you know, for you while you're doing your workouts. It's like I'm feeling like that's when it probably starts sinking in for real. Yeah, and then plus, 
And plus, I was literally on one of the greatest defensive lines in the history of the game. So we was just like, we was really more about our money. We was, just, <laughs> we was really about our money, like, at the time. We used to be like, man, we don't care about this trophy as long as our check clear. Like, we, like that was our mindset was like, look, bro, we're we not going nowhere until we like, were about to get paid. And so that was really kind of how we were. Ask, bro, I'm just thinking about it, though, like, Cause I know how I was like, you know, I had been in the game five years prior to working with Jay-Z, mm -hmm. but it was like, nobody really recognized me until I worked with Jay-Z. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So it was like, it was a difference in, in, in my, uh, I guess my, my, my persona to people, like people looked at me like, okay, he's more of a big deal now. So it's like, Super Bowl is the same thing. It's like oh, definitely once, once you get a Super Bowl, it's like, oh, that's that's not just Michael Bennett. That's Super Bowl champ Michael Bennett from, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's definitely a title. I think it's one of those things that you get a title and that title carries on with you. And you, in life, you just keep gathering titles. So it makes you, it kind of pulls you apart from regular people. Like, oh, he don't have that. But the thing I like to think about is that, like, it isn't until you get that certain platform that people can really recognize your talent because it doesn't mean that your talent is different from when you were doing music before. It's just that other people can recognize it because you had that platform. And I feel like right. that's what kind of happened in Seattle. A lot of us were really good, really great players, but people didn't really recognize us until they saw us on TV way more than they used to. Like, oh, this guy's kind of good. I feel like, I guess music is like that too. Like, this, like you like, man, you look back, you're like, man, like, you're making this shit. The shit he was doing back then, they were better than the shit they were Jay. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, and it's like, you kind of, and you kind of just, uh, Kind of get that. Yeah, that's exactly how I felt because people were like, yo, so you know, you just get in the game. Like, uh, actually, I've been doing this for like five years. Like, so then it's like people always got to go research my record and be like, oh, yeah, I didn't know you did that. I didn't know you did. But it's like the respect level just shot through the roof, bro, just from just having that affiliation with Jay. You know what I'm saying? So, like, it's the same thing. Like I said, it's the same thing with certain accolades, you know, Grammy. Uh, uh, Super Bowl, Oscar, you know what I mean? People just play all. But I feel, I feel, I feel like you one of those people too. That's like, that's like super great at what you do. But like, really, people just be like, they don't need because it's almost. I guess because you're not one of those people. Like, I feel like there's like, like people like me and you. Like, I feel like we talk to type of people. Like, we really good at what we do, but we don't really go out gloating about it so much that people gotta recognize it. Like, like and maybe that might be a flaw of ours too. Like, maybe, but then also seem like that's the thing that makes us good at what we do because we're not constantly like trying to bombard you like I feel like there's a lot of producers or a lot of players that are constantly putting themselves just like doing stuff and to me it just seems like it's really corny like it's just like it takes away from what the true essence of the skill is you know what I'm saying like yeah constantly promote. like if you're a boxer I get it like you're a boxer you gotta promote yourself but I feel like sometimes with music or what's name it's like people start liking people because the person just keeps saying they're good like you're like well they must be good like yeah, like like, you know, <laughs> like DJ Khaled, like people like, it's like at the end of the day, you be like, like you're like, damn, DJ Khaled, like, does he rap? Like, you don't even know at the end of the day, but he been so, we the best, I'm the best. God, like, it's like, it's just like, people just start like buying into it really fast. Straight buying into it. But do you feel like, uh, now that we've been watching this last dance thing with, with Michael Jordan, you feel like Legion of Boom got a story like that? I think we didn't win as many championships of it as they did, but I think we did have a whole bunch of talented people on on a whole nother level, level that had crazy, uh, crazy beliefs and also crazy ideas about themselves and also had crazy personalities. And I think if you talk about personality 
we were definitely up there in personality. I would say we had more personality than them because their personality was very limited. They had Michael Jordan, who who was who he was, and they had Scottie Pippen, who he, who he was, and then they had Dennis Rodman. But we had like a lot of different people who had different beliefs, but came together. So, and I, and I feel like if we'd have won that one, we would have ran the ball, and then I think we would have came back in the third year. We probably would have won three in a row because even that year that the Carolina win, we. We, we, Carolina only had 117 yards against us in that game. You know what I'm saying? So it was like if we could have, if Russell Wilson would have thrown three interceptions in the first quarter, like shit, we could have, we probably would have won that game. That part. <laughs> that part. How but you, how I you was, go ahead. I was about to say, it's just like, like even like Russell Wilson now, like I'm like, if Russell Wilson was like, he's better on offense than he was when we was there. We was a defensive team. Like if you match that offense with this defense that we had, we probably would have won four or five because his the offense was great now. I read something about him. He got like the like the third largest hand in the. Yeah, he's a, he's talented though. He's one of the most talented quarterbacks I've been around. I was I probably put him in the top four quarterbacks I've ever been around. Top three. Top three. Mm-hmm. You uh, how mad was you when y'all didn't run Marshawn Lynch on that goal line, bro? Like, you know what? I wasn't. I wasn't mad. I wasn't mad. I was just was disappointed. Because at the end of the coaching game, I think it came down to, like, that was the pivotal point of the game. And we don't know what could have happened, but we assumed that we win and we would have won the game. And that's I'm the crazy thing about assumptions. It's like, assumptions are, like, crazy because it's like, when you assume something, it just, it alters the whole reality. It alters, like, 20 realities, like, because we start assuming and we start to put these inceptions in our minds. So we don't really know what really happened. He could have ran, they could have stuck him, you know what I'm saying? But also defensively, like, we lost a lot of people in the second half. And I think we were really defensively we played better and it kept them from scoring 20 points, we probably won that game, too. I know I was pissed. Are you yeah, serious? It was a tough game, though. A lot of people lost a lot of money, too. I was like, oh, are you serious not running him right now, bro? But, it was, it was, like, most players aren't outspoken when they come to, you know, social injustice and just politics, period. And it seemed like you had a, <clears throat> a certain stance with Cap, you know what I'm saying, with the whole, you know, kneeling thing, which which was ballsy, you know what I'm saying? Most most of those guys in the NFL don't have the balls or the heart to do that. So how you how did that affect you, you know, saying your relationship with certain people in, in, in the league? I mean, I grew up like I grew up like my whole my whole growing up and my existence was around black identity. Like um my stepmom went to Grambling University. So I spent a lot of times in at Grambling, like so I went to would visit Eddie Robinson. I did like NAACP uh, camps as a kid. So I was doing all this stuff, learning about history of black people. Like I started reading uh, Malcolm X books like when I was like 10 years old. You know what I'm saying? Like I, oh, wow. I studied like my my punishment growing up was reading the encyclopedia. You know what I'm saying? So it was like I grew up like reading a lot, reading and understanding so much. And I grew up in growing up in that small town. I seen racism a lot. So like this was nothing new to me. Like to speak on like social issues. I I, I used to get in trouble in college because I was like, they call they used to call me Michael Lick, You know what I'm saying? Because I was so like, I wasn't radical. wasn't really radical. I was just speaking the truth, like how what what it was like to really be the existence and challenging those things. So it was normal for me. I think in this in the, in the world, like when you like so what Colin Colin Kaepernick was doing, I was like that's that's right. What we need to be doing as athletes and what we need to be doing as black men. Like there's a sense of like there's a sense of people who came before us. And I think our job is black people and African-American people, however you, what you want to say, it's like, 
we have a duty and obligation um, subconsciously and consciously like to continuously standing on the shoulders of our ancestors, right? Because as soon as we start to lack in, in, in movement, it, it actually puts a block in our kids' future. Because like once we start moving and thinking about like, could you imagine if people who were slaves are like, you know, it's not gonna get better, so let's just stay slaves. Like, should we still be slaves? You know, Jim Crow, like it's a progression. Like, and so what he was doing was just a progression within the athletes' world. But I think a lot of sponsors and coaches they were unsure what the fan base was doing, right? Because we live in a world where we live in a world where everything is judged online, and I think sometimes being judged online is more scary than being judged in person because. You judge a person, that's between you and that person. But when you judge online, it's the, it's the personification of what other people are thinking about you around the world. Sheesh. It's that online situation, boy. Don't even go down that rabbit hole. No, like, online is a constant. Online is vicious, bro. If you ever get bored and you just feel like laughing, pick a star Instagram page and just go pick a go on a picture and just read the comments. Yo, you got some mean as people out here, yo. People, people hate y'all, man. Being be evil, I, and I and I believe this, and that's just me. People hate that. I say this. I believe people are born evil and taught to be good. That's just what I believe. And people don't want to, don't believe that, but that's what I believe. I believe people do evil shit before they do good shit. So it's like innocent before proven guilty? Or you yeah. guilty before proven innocent? Is is you, you, you evil until you're proven good. <laughs> I'll be saying babies do babies be doing some evil shit, putting food in your mouth and taking it out. <laughs> like why why is that amusing you? You take your food, like it's just like it's amusing, like you know what I'm saying? Like gotcha, bitch. Yeah, kids be doing evil shit. <laughs> so what hey, what was in your earphones like doing warm-ups? Like, like what was you listening to for the most part? Um, my earphones, first of all, it's Nipsey Hustle, like I got nipped in there, like all, all right, get right, all right. Like that's one of my favorite ones. Um, of course, Rick Ross. Uh, probably I did Serotonin Grease, and I did uh, uh, Rich Off Cocaine, and um, and then I got a uh, little bit of Kanye in there. Uh, crack music. That was one of my favorite songs. Just that crack music, nigga. That real black music, man. Oh, I forgot about that joint. Yeah, that's one of my. That was one of my joints. Um, so, I mean, and then I would kind of, I guess, and then Future, like March Madness, that was one of my favorite songs. And so, there's like, yeah, stuff like that. And then Old School, for sure, like, Everybody Loves the Sunshine. And, um, you just used that. Huh? I said, we just used that. I mean, that's my favorite song. I mean, that's one of my favorite songs because it's that song has so many different meanings, like the triple entendre. Um, but uh, that, yeah, so those are one of my favorite artists kind of growing up in. I mean, I guess I, I mean, no, not really. Oh, oh yeah, Beanie Seagull one of my favorite too. So I love Beanie Seagull. That's one of my favorite rappers in all time. Just, just the old Beanie? Old Beanie, like, 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 it's on, like, it's on, like, you could slide down the razor bird sliding board. Like, come on, like, Beanie Seagull yeah. was like, that, that's, like, that was my, that's why I used to listen to, like, I got all Beanie albums. So I used to listen to Beanie Seagull a lot, like, old school, like, Purple Rain, like, all that kind of stuff. And, Purple and, Haze. No, he has the song about the purple, uh, called purple haze. Don't blow my high purple haze. Oh, purple haze, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he just changed the words up. Yeah, shout out to DJ Scratch because he produced that one. Yeah, that was that was that was that was. Oh yeah, and UGK. I would grow up listening to UGK all the time. So UGK was always on my pimp. C was one of my favorite artists growing up. Yeah, a, a very diverse playlist. Oh yeah, man. I, 
But like I said, Beanie Siegel was I, I always I I was mad when when because Beanie man like even though yeah. lyrically he'd be on that, but it was just so gangster, bro. Like it, like then it was like every song he made like you could feel the pain in the music. It wasn't like I don't know. It was just like he went in there and it was just like what was on his chest. He smoked a blunt and just be spitting like how he really feel about some shit. How you feel like a song about his mom? Like like it's just crazy. How you did it. Beans was definitely a force to be reckoned with back in the day. You know what I'm saying? As far as early Rockefeller days, like if you ever get a chance, go on, go on uh, YouTube and listen to the Hot 97 freestyles. I listen to freestyles all the time on Hot 97. I go on there all the time. But whenever I'm like bored on YouTube, I'll just watch freestyles. And like, and I love I love beats too. So I like so like for example like. I'll go like it, like I'll be like, man, I want to listen to what beat made like on um, what's name. So I'll just, I'll just go to title and click on your your thing and then just do a whole playlist of just all the shit you made or like whatever, whatever a producer that I love like or listen to. I'll just listen to their whole catalog the whole way down because like, that's the only thing I like about title that you can do that. You can look up different producers and yeah, I was I was hyped when I seen I had a I had a playlist up there. Yeah, uh, yeah, playlist for me up there and Apple. Oh yeah, they do. They do got both. I listen to both. This is one DJ. This is one producer I like too. Now he kind of, kind of, he, he did make a lot of records, but he's pretty good too. DJ Dahi. Dahi. Dahi, yeah. Yeah, Dahi is dope. Dahi is super dope. I get it to him. Yeah. I'm a fan of him too. So, Dahi yeah. and um, I like T Minus is one of my favorites. What's up, he do? Look at you. Now look at us. All my niggas is rich as fuck. Boom, boom. That's one. And um, did a whole bunch of shit for Drake. Uh, uh, oh, yeah. Drop it down for a real nigga that jump. Yeah. Nah, he, like, he probably. I'm I'm about to listen to him. Man. I'm about to listen to him. But I like, but I'm also too. I also listen to like a lot of African music too. So it's like I always listen to a lot of African music and a lot of different sound. And like I'm one of those people. Oh yeah, like and then it's like. Fela Kute, like, and then like, it's just like these other artists and then like this Cub Cubano and African music mixed together. Like, just like the instruments is like what, I just listen to the instruments, like, cause you know, you gotta listen to three minutes of instruments before the song even come on. Yeah, like you gotta listen to a whole bunch of shit before you even, they even, uh, even say anything. They might, they might say 20 words in the whole song. You're like, damn. No, I love live instrumentation. I don't know if you ever been to a live, like salsa, like what Spanish salsa club. Yeah, like you have to go if you've never been just to experience, like the music and that shit with the upright bass and the timbales and the guitar and the piano. It's insane. I you know I lived in Jersey, so I had a lot of Spanish friends that would take me to the Spanish club and listen to the live salsa. It's insane. But it's crazy though, because it's like with music now, you don't really hear a lot of live instrumentation. It's kind of like, and and like those little like when I hear when I talk about Royal Airs and all those little little different things, and you hear like those little small like instruments in the back, you're like, oh, that's good. Like I'll listen to some raw, like you know, like certain raw, like some of the instruments that they use, like jazz and stuff. It's just crazy. Like 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 those are like I guess those are real like artists or how they do stuff. But it's it blew my mind. I like the amount of things. But it's so crazy though, because you talk about African music. I remember the first time I went to Africa, and that shit blew my mind too. Like that shit was crazy, like because it was like one of those things. Never been, yo. I, I have to most definitely go. You have, bro. You, I feel like every African American person has to go to Africa. Then it would all make sense. It's going to make sense. 
You, you, you've been to that place called the Point of No Return? Have you been there? Yeah, that's what that's where I went. Because I'm actually my ancestors from that country. So I went there. I spent a lot of time there. I went there. I was there for two two weeks. I went to Senegal for two weeks. Because right, I got like a school out there, there's stuff for girls and crime and building stuff for schools and stuff. So I was out there like a long time working and stuff. Man, like that shit, that shit, that's the shit that tried to change my life too. Like, like when I was out there, like, man, I used to be up late at night, man, outside just crying though, bro, because it was just so heavy. Like the burden of like, like literally sitting there like in the, underneath the sun, looking up at the stars and it's so dark outside. And you're really thinking like, damn, my grandmother was stolen from here. Like, who knows like her, where her daddy, like, I was like, dang, I couldn't imagine like my daughter being stolen and I can't find out where she is and what's happened to her. Like, that shit was kind of messing my brain though. Like, cause it was just like, yeah, that's what my grandma went through. She was on a boat and she didn't know where she would go. And she made a life, like she literally made a life. And I'm back here where she started it. Like, that's, that's a lot of, a lot of, that's a lot, that's a lot heavy for a young person. And I was thinking like, why am I the first person to go right here? Why am I the first person to, to want to search this? Why am I the only person that wants to realize like how, how important DNA is it to our true story of where we are and where we are, like knowing what we are, like like my 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 tribe that I come from is storytelling. Like it's it's about storytelling. It's about cultural heritage, it's food and everything. And it's about standing up on what you believe in. Like my village of warriors, though, like it's no it's no like it's no like no coincidence that everything that I am as a human being now is attached to those cultural values that's in my blood and in my DNA. Yeah, because you know, at the end of the day, I think the biggest hang up for, for blacks is that we can't put solidarity before the bag. Whew. That you part, that's what you say, that part. That part, you know what I'm saying? It's like, that's what we, we get stuck at. That's why I'm so intrigued by this is one video um, I seen on Instagram a couple of years ago, and uh, apparently they have fired this Mexican dude at this plant, you know what I'm saying? So, whole bunch of machine workers so he him and all his Mexican friends straight turned their machines off bro like we out you gonna fire Jesus we all out you know what I'm saying and black dude with them like yo yo look they all leaving yo that's crazy because we would never do that for each other yeah you know that's what I'm saying I think no I think you, I think it's like it's like we come together for certain things like when there's like uh police violence and hold on a second Yeah, we come together for certain things, but it's like one of those things too. Like we come together for like we have to start coming together and making um uh we start coming together and like for things like that, like using our using our political power and our amount of people that we have to really crush the system to make the justice that we want or make the opportunity that we want. I mean, the world is just like the jail. You know, we always outnumber the guards. But the catch is everybody being on the same page. That's the catch. Yeah. Everybody being locked up on one accord. You know what I'm saying? So that's the biggest challenge ever. But we always outnumber the guards. You know what I'm saying? That's just something to think about. But also, too, I think it's too like, I feel like as, as as an African American man or African American women and African American kids, like we never really are taught about like the importance of like collectively coming together. We more are taught like the individual statistics of 
people like right the individuality of Martin Luther King or Malcolm X like we don't really talk about like the the whole idea of people coming together we so quick to highlight and just certain people in it and we become they become like the messiah effect that we like everybody somebody needs to be the messiah but when we come to group politics and group togetherness they can't figure out who is who because all of us have the same message and we have the same highlight and I just think it's just such sometimes we're so much about survival that it's like we even sometimes like we don't even realize like it's it's not always about survival sometimes it's about maintaining once again solidarity just standing as one if we say hey we ain't doing Gucci it should be nothing to talk about nobody but black people man we just they did a they did a number on us so it's like people just be like man I like Gucci like they ain't do that to me we know mm-hmm. they did that to you per se but to the you know it did something to her or him so it's like we got to stand together for that like man F that like, I ain't doing that but it goes back to material things too because then material things now you going you going right back to what you said at the beginning too because it's like the material things we have to get over the materialism that's or has become um, has become our currency. Like, right, if we have a certain thing on that, it, it kind of puts us in a, a, a system like, oh, this person, this class, like if he has this on, he's up, he's upper class. So everybody's trying to search and get to that, that what is going to uh, put them into the, the category of being who they want to be or who they say they are instead of being exactly what they are. Like, like, you know, like, so I feel like material things kind of put people in that position to be like, man, I can't stop wearing Gucci. People not going to think I'm rich anymore. You know what I'm saying? Like, is that, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, it's one of those things too, but it's like, you know, like, it's like in, in the Bible and Jesus and, and John the Baptist was talking about, and he was talking about, uh, about how like when we come into, come into God or we come into a situation where we have to come naked, right? And it's the sense of that, like, when we come to, our realization that it isn't about our outside or what we're wearing. It's about our inner peace, like our inner selves. Like what if we could come truly conquer our inner selves, then we won't have to worry about what we're wearing on the outside because we'd be comfortable with who we are on the inside. Never. I can't never see that happen. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I can see that happening one day. People, but I also think music is a part of that, right? Because back in the day, like music is so music was what got people free in slavery, like dancing, like uh, keeping up. Like music is so important to African American people. Like I think that we forgot the power of what our music is. Like our music is everything. Music started in Africa. Like the actual music and everything it comes from the essence of our figuring out how to make it, make the sounds that it makes. And we brought that around the world. The African slave brought that around the world. They brought that around the world. And it's like, we forgot how important music is to our psyche and how important music is to changing the trajectory of our youth. Like, right, whatever our youth is doing, it's gonna be an outsource of what's happening within the music. You know what I'm saying? Like, music is missing that link to that past. Or like, what you said that day to me is true too. I mean, people that are, doing that aren't getting as highlighted as the people who aren't doing it too. So, but we, it's because nobody wants to go independent no more. Everybody has to go through the eyes of people who control the music and they're looking for a certain thing. There's no reason why Takashi 69 should be having 50 million streams on his videos. Oh, absolutely should have a reason because young white America don't give two shits about street code. That's some bullshit we own. You know what I'm saying? Like we don't, they, they don't care nothing about he snitched. They like that song, yeah. Period. So I actually I bet somebody some money on this, and I can't remember 
who it was. You know what I'm saying? And they was like, no, he, he ain't going to be big. I said, bro, he's going to be just as big as he was before he left. Now he has a story. Very true. He got a testimony now. You know what I'm saying? Like, you almost died. Dude, not his baby mama off. You know what I'm saying? You got arrested <laughs> and got out. Yeah, you're right. You're right. The movie, like, this is some Gail Sayers rapper movie shit now. You know what I'm saying? Like, like it's crazy. Like, it's nuts to think of it that way. But that's what it is, bro. Like, the average person don't give two shits about no street coat. That's true. You know too. what I'm saying? Right. Plus, I've been right. seeing dudes snitching for 20 years. That's true, too. You know what I mean? But at the end of the day, did you, did it ever come to a point in the NFL where they, they y'all were even close to protesting against the league at all, like as a whole? I mean, it's, it's, you know, always, it's the, the, it goes back to what you said. I think in this whole conversation, like, like some of the beginning, the root things that you said is like the rooted things and why the division doesn't work, right? Because it goes back to some people don't want to put the the longevity of, of the league before the bag. Like what what is it going to look like for players after us? Like we're so much thinking about how we feel and how it's going to make us feel, but we won't even take one second to realize that there's people who's going to impact. Our decisions have major impact, have major cause and effects that we haven't been equipped to really understand what those things really mean. So how you feel about the, the Rooney Rule proposal? I feel like the Rooney Rule is, is so is so jaded because I feel like there's an importance of players too because players haven't really took a stance on what does it look like for black coaches, right? And it's like, but a lot of players end up becoming coaches and it's like if we aren't um, equipped to really back the coaches and back their, their journey, it's like it goes back to we're divided again, like, he looked like us, he sound like us, but he in another thing. But it's like, no, nah, they affected him and that's affecting us because at the end of the day, the reason why he's not getting a job is because of his race. It isn't because of his skill, it's because of his race. And that's an issue for all of us. And I feel like they, the ruling rulers, to me, is it's a difference between rules and laws. Like rules are not governed like laws. And I think if it's a Rooney, it should be the Rooney law, not the Rooney rule. Because rules, there's so many different ways you could do a rule. You could run it, you could do this, you could do that. But laws, they're governed and they have punishment behind them. So I think it needs to be laws. Which is the same scenario with why we only have a bill to vote and not the right to vote. Mm -hmm. You understand? Yeah. So it's like they got to keep renewing it. Yeah. And nobody talks about that. Like, why do we have something that needs to be renewed when it should just be what it is? You know what I'm saying? Well, people don't want to talk about the temporary, like, world that we live in. Like, the world is constantly changing, and sometimes we get so caught up in the past, which the past is important, but we have to be, be have to keep up to what they're doing currently so we can make sure that how it was in the past, they don't go back to that way. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, right. You know, it's like history, like, you know, history, like, it just, it just keeps repeating itself because it's like they always put the the rich uh, minority on camera that has no concept of struggle or of the struggle. So it paints a picture to everybody. That's why it blows me away when people say, yo, Trump is bringing back, bringing back all the racism. I say, what you mean he bringing it back? It was already never left. It never left. So what are we talking about right now? But that's what I think sometimes when people like when like Puff Daddy or somebody gets on. Is his name still Puff Daddy? This week, I don't know. They would think it's love this week. I don't know. But we'll go with Puff. Yeah. Hold on, my wife since she needed. Uh, hold on, sorry. She told me she, she needed here. 
but like he was on there with CNN and him and Magic Johnson was talking and I was just like, uh, I was just like, him and Magic Johnson was talking and, uh, but, and, and then they was talking and it's just like, they are so disconnected to what is like be really being on those streets now, what is really like being right there. And they talking from position of power, which is, you need that. But I think it's connection between organic and political leadership that's important. See me, I think like, think about Jay-Z brought, uh, rock music thing, right? It's brunch, like it's a brunch, right? And it's just like a whole bunch of people getting together, dressing up, standing there at the rock brunch and doing this, like, oh man, toast to this. Nothing's wrong with that. You should be celebrating. It's important that we celebrate. But what, what about the movement? Like, what about like, this is what we need to, this is what needs to happen in music. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like those steps are, oh, this is what we need to be doing. This is what we need to be saying. Like, like we have people in those positions of leadership and they may say it to the common people, but they don't say it to the people who have other platforms who can use their platforms to really carry out a message and really carry out something great. What what else you got going off, you know, since you're not playing football anymore, what, what, outside of your podcast, what else you got cracking? I'm doing, I, I mean, I sold my books. I'm doing a TV show. I'm making an album right now. Um, doing all kinds of stuff, man. It's just all kinds of crazy stuff. Show world, huh? Yeah, Show world, son. I feel like creativity is something that's just like, you know, I feel like creativity is the next step to the, we have to be creatively free to really, because I feel like a lot of people have so many passions and things that they want to do, but they stay inside that boundary because being creative is, is, is fear. Like it's fearful to try to be creative because so much judgment comes with those, um, the concepts of being, trying to be free, you know what I'm saying? So the concepts of having creativity is one of those things. So that's why reason why, because I feel like even like with music, I've always loved music. I've always rapped on these different things and, like freestyling all these different things. I'm like, man, why not put something together and make something great and just put it out and be like, man, this is what I want to do. There's no no record label behind me, no nothing. I just created what I wanted to create. It wasn't to do nothing. It was just to have a message and continue the message that I've always taught and what I always believed in. I mean, that's why I'm kind of, not kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm actually happy that I'm involved with you with doing the album, you know what I'm saying? Because ain't nothing like being around like-minded people. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? That understand and feel the same way you feel about certain situations. So when we bouncing that ideas off each other, it's like, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's, let's talk about that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think it's important too, because like you know, one thing you always tell me, like, bro, like you want you want to be authentic enough to where it makes it makes sense. Like you don't it's like you have to be able to say stuff like and I think that's where it comes in for like when you working with somebody like you and you work on it, it's like, because it's like certain ways you can say something, but it's so blunt that it doesn't put any artistry behind it. It's like when you say like, when you put it into a way that is such in a thought provoking way, and it's like, that's where the artistry comes in because there's a difference between speaking and then actually making people think, you know? And that's what Dave Chappelle is so great at. Yeah. Touching on issues, making a joke out of it, but making you think at the same time, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, just like uh, what's the other dude, uh, uh, Eddie Griffin? Oh yeah, oh man, Eddie Griffin's Showtime special, uh, Enigma. That was the that I don't care. Nobody said that was the funniest shit on on TV. That was the funniest shit I've ever seen. That those two guys, like I, I really, and then George Carlin. I don't know if you don't think about George Carlin. Oh yes, yes, the white guy. He was great, but but he touches he touched on a lot of political issues. You know what I'm saying? And brought comedy to it but at the same time brought awareness you know what i mean so like i said it's just great to, to be able to do this uh this project with you and actually try to enlighten our people and 
wake them up at the same time, you know what I'm saying? And I think people are going to be really crazy, too, because, like, even, like, some of the stuff, like, when they hear the music, they're going to be like, man, like, because it's so, like, people hear athletes doing music, it's so, it's so, like. Cliche. <laughs> it's so, like, it's corny almost. It's so corny because they're trying to be, like, other people that they hear. Y'all might be off for a second. Um, I'll play to one thing. Okay, yeah, we're about to be done. But it's just so. It's so uh it's so cliche, like it like you said, it's really corny and like it's like there's no um there's no uh there's no continuity behind it. And that's why that's why it's cool like work with somebody like you because it's like like we're not doing that. That's not that. We if you wanna do that, I'm not even gonna let you do that. Like that's not <laughs> if you're gonna do that you I'm not finna give you a fake amigo record right quick. I ain't gonna do that to you. You know what I'm saying? We ain't doing that. You know what I mean? <laughs> like we trying to we trying to give some put some meat and potatoes in this shit. Like, no, not just a whole bunch of sides. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah. So that, that's what I want to make sure. But is there a team that you wish you would have played for that you didn't play for? Man, the only team I think I would have wished I would play for is probably the Atlanta Falcons. I just love Mike, Mike, Mike Vic time? No, nah, just any time. I just love the colors. I just it's like it's like a, a dope city. Atlanta's like a dope city. Like it's like a whole different vibe from going to Atlanta Falcons game and to going to any other games. Like any other games you walk in, it's like it's like super white, right? And but then you go to Atlanta Falcons, it's like everybody at the game. Future, like it's just a whole bunch of every turn single. Up. It's a turn up. Like the music <laughs> is different. Everything about the Atlanta Falcons stadium is different. Like it's like. You, it's actually like black people sitting in the first. This is a nice vibe to like walk into a situation, and not and just feel like, dang, like this is like cool. Like like I can only imagine what it feels like to grow up in Atlanta, like versus growing up in somewhere like um, Louisiana. Like it's two different vibes. Like you grew up in one place where judges and principals and everything is black, and you grow up in another place and it's the complete opposite. So I was like Atlanta because I'm like, man, this stadium, the way that crowd be going, and like to me, Atlanta is our black LA. It is. Because when you go to L.A. or Miami, you're going to see Ferraris, Phantoms, you know what I'm saying? And it's mainly whites that's driving those cars. Yeah. But when you go to Atlanta, you see those same cars, and it's all black people driving these joints. It's like, wow, so I can't get one of those. Bro, you know what I mean? Crazy. Like, you like, this is a black glory? Like, it's just like a lot of, like, it's just a lot of, like, everything is African-American. And it's kind of crazy because I went to Haiti in my mind like I'm thinking that Haiti is like free, like, and I'm thinking all these different things. And when I get to Haiti, I'm thinking it's gonna be like Atlanta, right? And it's like it was a complete opposite. And so it was like it kind of, it kind of, it kind of messed my mind up too, because I'm like, dang, Haiti's the first free country. Like it must be, it must be rocking over there. You know what I'm saying? Like, and it was the op complete opposite. But Atlanta was Bart a team. That was, <laughs> Atlanta was a team that I always wanted to play for, just because the simple fact that the stadium used to be crunk. New Orleans is crunk too, but Atlanta. I couldn't play in New Orleans with too much family there, but Atlanta was always a team I was like, man, I was so close to going there twice, but then I did Well, shit, I know, I know why you're pulling on you. You know what I'm saying? But well, I appreciate you taking the time out to talk to me, brother. Chop it up. Thank you. I appreciate y'all, man. Appreciate you, man. Thank you for having me on. And uh, I got I to gotta do yours next, so let me know. All right. Yes, sir. All right. All right, bro, bro. Sure. Thanks, man. Thanks. The Humble Monster. Thank you.